At Emory University's Goizueta Business School, we believe in going beyond what is to build what should be. Because when you change your perspective, you change business for the better. In an ever-changing marketplace, we seek to make our mark. To achieve more, build more, do more, create more. That's the Goizueta Effect. Hi, I'm Melanie Buckmaster, Director of Communications for Emory University's Goizueta Business School, and your host. Today, I'll be joined by Andrea Dittman. We'll be discussing how to build a more equitable workplace and the role that social class plays in both career success and team performance. Andrea is an Associate Professor of Organization and Management at Emory University's Goizueta Business School. Her work has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, Politico, and the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Welcome, Andrea. Thanks so much, Melanie. Great to be here. Great. Well, let's start at the beginning. How do you define social class? That's certainly an interesting question, and it's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about as social class researchers. But the way that we like to talk about it, um, and particularly the way I'll be talking about it today, is really focusing on the social class context that you grew up in. So whether you grew up in a more blue-collar environment or a more white-collar environment. And what we mean by that is in blue-collar environments, especially in the United States, people tend to have less than a college degree, lower incomes, and blue-collar type jobs, whereas in middle and upper-class contexts, people tend to have college, tend to people tend to be college-educated, have higher incomes, and white-collar jobs. And so we sort of draw that distinction between sort of the bottom half and the top half of the social class divide. As a society, I do feel like we're at a turning point. Employees and employers are beginning to really understand the true value of diversity and inclusion. We hear a lot about race, gender, and sexual orientation, which are really important markers of identity. Why is social class and its impact on business an important area of study? Yes, this is um, a very burgeoning area of research, I would say. So as you mentioned, we do think a lot about um, gender and race and other forms of diversity. However, what we know and are beginning to discover more and more in the growing body of research on this is that people's social class context that they are raised in really shape their outlooks on life and what they value and that these differences tend to persist relatively enduringly across the lifespan in college and later in life as people enter the workplace. It's not to say that these differences in socialization, that one is better than the other, it's just that they have sort of different outlooks on life. And it's something that's not quite as visible as race or gender, um, but that doesn't mean that it's any less important. And it starts early, right? So what messages do individuals from working class backgrounds receive from their families? And how does that compare with groups from other social backgrounds? Yeah, so this is really interesting. So this is drawing on a relatively large body of research in cultural and social psychology um, that has kind of documented these different norms and values that get socialized in different social class contexts. So in working class contexts in the United States, these tend to foster what we refer to as interdependent norms and values. And so in these contexts, the messages that parents is, parents are conveying to their children is that they should recognize their place in the hierarchy, follow rules and norms, and be responsive to others' needs. And they might receive messages something like, it's not just about you, and you can't always get what you want. In contrast, in middle-class contexts, we see that they tend to foster what we refer to as independent norms and values. And so parents are more so conveying to message 
uh, messages to children about a sense of self-importance and individual entitlement. And they may send these messages, including things like the world is your oyster and your voice matters. And so repeatedly being exposed to these different messages over time is what really fosters these different norms um, that are often taken for granted, but they really shape people's outlook on life. What are some of the impacts that social class can have on an individual's career path and career trajectory? This is really um, one of the more startling bodies of research that's beginning to emerge. And so, again, kind of focusing on the social class context in which you were raised. So um, whether you grew up in a working class context or a middle class context, then you all kind of go to college. And what we see is that even when you have college credentials, people from working class backgrounds are less likely to receive a callback for an elite job less likely to advance to a leadership position once they are in a job, and on average are earning about 17% less than their counterparts from middle-class backgrounds. And again, this is with the exact same college qualifications. And you spoke about different value systems that begin at a very early age. So how does social class impact an individual's work style, their values, and their overall performance? So when I was talking earlier about these different messages and these different norms that people develop, um, these are things that are you know, very broad, sort of abstract concepts, but they manifest in a number of ways in the workplace. And so it leads to sort of people from working class context having a very different way of understanding themselves and a very different way of relating to other people compared to middle class individuals. They tend to be more attentive to others in social conversations. They are more empathic. Um, they are, you know, better able to integrate different perspectives in conversation. These are all sort of things that make sense when you think about their understanding of themselves as kind of connected to others and social context. And that's very different than our classic focus on individualism in the United States, which is more characteristic of middle class individuals who kind of are very agentic and they really have their own preferences and they make their voices heard and prefer to be unique and different from others. So again, it's it manifests in a number of very markedly different ways ways that can be seen differently in, in people's behaviors and approaches to interactions. What barriers do employees from working class backgrounds face? They face barriers, especially in the workplace, at a number of different levels. So first, um, from the perspective of hiring, we know from the sociologist Lauren Rivera's work that hiring managers tend to unconsciously show discrimination against applicants from working class backgrounds because they are hiring on something that sounds very neutral and potentially positive, um, what we call cultural fit. And what that means is that they're seeking employees that they feel like they could get along with or enjoy spending time with. Um, but unfortunately, what this tends to mean is that they are selecting people who are more similar to themselves, meaning often that they are people who are coming from higher class backgrounds. So people who come from higher class backgrounds can relate to these hiring managers because they had similar travel experiences growing up. They, they took similar international vacations. Um, they played, you know, elite sports like rugby and lacrosse, whereas people who are coming from working class backgrounds, even if they are able to obtain these college credentials, they are less likely to have had those experiences growing up. And so what this turns into is something somewhat neutral sounding cultural fit actually producing this discrimination in hiring that we see. And so that's the, at the hiring stage. Then what we know is um, from some of the work that I'm doing, along with my colleagues Nicole Stevens and Sarah Townsend, is that a, the culture of many modern workplaces is not set up in a way that would enable some of those relational strengths that I was talking about earlier to shine through. 
in our ongoing work, we're actually finding that the vast majority of white collar work environments actually may undermine these collaborative strengths. Because even though many modern organizations require collaboration and teamwork, um, they may fail to promote teamwork as part of their broader organizational values. And what we find is that it's only when the values and the practices around teamwork at an organization are aligned do the company cultures actually have the potential to really create an inclusive work environment for employees from working class contexts. And finally, we know from the work of Peter Bellamy, who's a professor at the University of Virginia Darden School of Business, that the way that people rise up in the ranks in modern organizations often values those independent values of people from higher class contexts. So we know that to kind of rise up through the ranks in modern organizations, you often have to play politics and you have to behave very confidently, perhaps even overconfidently. Um, and this is kind of how you rise through the ranks and, you know, people um, from working class contexts are less comfortable engaging in those types of behaviors than middle class individuals. We've talked a lot about social class, but we know there's lots of other identities that come into play, like race, gender, and sexual orientation. How do these other identities intersect with social class? We could probably do a whole other podcast about all these intersectional identities um, because they are incredibly important. But again, as I was mentioning, even the work on social class in organizations is relatively recent. I would say it's really been growing in the past five to 10 years. Um, so accordingly, a lot of the work on these intersectional identities is also relatively new and much of it is ongoing. Uh, however, I can say that our own, our very own Erica Hall, who is one of my colleagues in the organization and management area here at Goizueta, has some very interesting work on intersectional stereotypes. So, for example, she finds that certain categories, certain social identities, are often associated, like race and social class. So, for example, she cites in one of her papers that even though many black Americans are not actually impoverished, her work and the work of others actually finds that there are nonetheless these very strong associations in people's minds between African-American categorizations and lower social class categorizations. So that sort of perpetuates this intersectional stereotype that black Americans are less well off than white Americans. And so I think there's really interesting implications um, because, again, we talked a little bit earlier about how social class tends to be relatively less visible while race is more visible. But then if you sort of add in this layer of complexity that um, there's different social class stereotypes associated with different racial groups, it kind of makes things that much more complicated. Um, and there's also some really interesting work happening on gender and social class and the way that uh, women from working class backgrounds in particular have to contend both with sort of lacking the resources um, that comes from the lower social class origins, as well as sort of combating these gender stereotypes that we know are very pervasive in modern workplaces. So they're having to kind of double down and work twice as hard just to sort of show that they're committed to their career and really want to succeed at work. I know you've recently conducted a lot of research around the pandemic and its impact on society. When we think about the push for equity, how has COVID-19 impacted the broader public's perception of the working class and equity in society as a whole? This is some work that's ongoing that I'm really excited about. So we conducted a, it's, we're actually currently conducting the third wave of this survey. So we've done a longitudinal survey starting last May of 2020, so in the very early stages of the pandemic. And we measured people's personal harm from the pandemic. So the number of sort of adverse experiences that they had experienced in the first few months of the pandemic, like losing their job or actually falling ill with COVID or knowing others who fell ill with COVID um, or having sort of emotional or psychological distress resulting from anxiety around the pandemic. And what we saw is those people who had actually experienced 
personal harm from the pandemic, regardless of their own social class, they actually um, shifted their attitudes towards and actions to advocate for equality over over time. So five months later, when we asked them how much you would prefer to sort of have more equality in the United States, as well as if they'd actually sort of called up one of their legislators to advocate for equality, we found that the people who had experienced more harm early in the pandemic were more likely to actually have more positive attitudes towards redistribution and actually prefer policies that would make um, American society more equitable. So we're really encouraged by those findings. We're kind of thinking of it as a silver lining of the pandemic, if you will. I mean, it's tragic that so much harm has existed in this in the context of this pandemic, but at least it hints at the possibility that this could be a great moment for change and a great time to sort of implement policies and practices that would actually help um, bolster the experiences of people from working class contexts. Do you have any idea about why the perception might be changing? Have you looked into that at all? What we find that might be driving these sort of shifting attitudes and policy preferences is that people, um, when they sort of experience harm and it's kind of coming from this clearly external force that is the pandemic, so something that is clearly beyond their control, that really makes them more empathetic and more understanding of how broader forces in society might actually shape people's lives outside of the pandemic. So along with that sort of individualistic narrative that we have in the United States, typically people think that sort of your life outcomes and your life circumstances are the result of your own agentic choices and behavior. So, you know, people who are poor are just lazy or, you know, they're not willing to work hard enough to sort of get to the the next level. However, again, if you think about the pandemic and this clearly sort of external shock and the external externally imposed adversity that has come from that, it sort of makes people recognize more so that, oh, perhaps these people who are typically in the lower social classes in the United States did not get there through their own will entirely. Perhaps there were broader forces at work in society that actually were shaping their ability to kind of rise through the ranks and and get up to higher social classes. We've talked quite a bit about individuals, but what about the impact on an organization? What value does diversity and social class bring to a team? So this is um, one of my main areas of research and one of the ones that I'm the most excited about. So what we found is that, you know, again, along the lines of this individualistic narrative in the U.S., we oftentimes assess people as individuals. So we have people complete an individual SAT exam to get into college, an individual GMAT to get into business school. And we sort of take for granted that that is a good and right way to assess people. But what my work is finding is that if you actually have people complete those exact same assessments but have them do it in teams, we actually see that working class people can even outperform middle class people. And again, that goes back to what I was talking about a little earlier when I was mentioning how people from working class contexts are so much more relational in nature. Um, We find that they actually, when they're working together in teams, they actually engage in more of these behaviors that actually make teams work together effectively. So they are better at attending to others. They're better at integrating people's opinions. And in the experiments that we've done, we actually see that they engage in turn-taking more often. So they are creating a conversation that is more active and balanced amongst all the group members. And this is leading to them surfacing more information while they're working together to solve problems. And these are things that are very beneficial to groups. So there is a lot of benefit in terms of collaborative work and teamwork that can be had by bringing in more people from working class backgrounds. 
How can organizations remove barriers for working class employees and really bring out their best? So I think kind of the first step is to have more inclusive hiring practices, right? So we know that um, we haven't seen it yet with social class, but we know that kind of creating more structured interviews um, enables their more diverse candidates to kind of rise to the ranks so that we've seen that with both gender and race. And my expectation would be that if we um, had really standard sort of set of questions or set of you know activities that you asked applicants to engage in, that that would be a, a more systematic way to ensure that this cultural fit idea doesn't creep in and sort of color interviewers' judgments. So I think that's um, a great step for us to kind of have these more structured interviews at the, you know, the application phase. Um, but then, you know, of course, once they are in the organization, I think it's really important to think about the practices that you're using to sort of evaluate your employees and decide, you know, who gets promotions, who gets bonuses. And again, that, that talks about um, including both individual and team-based assessments. The work that I've done doesn't suggest that we should eliminate individual measures of success or achievement at all. It just um, indicates that we should sort of have a more balanced approach to assessing our employees. Because I do think um, that we know that collaboration is on the rise and it's not going away anytime soon. So I think it's something that organizations would do well to evaluate because it is a critical part of most organizations' workflows these days. So by including sort of more balanced assessment of you know individual skills and abilities as well as, you know, is this person a good teammate? Are they an effective collaborator? Are they sort of getting those voices and opinions heard in group settings and, and getting these better team outcomes? I think should be another important component to how we evaluate our employees. What resources and organizations out there are confronting this issue? I think there are a lot of great organizations, and that's something that's really encouraging to see that are actually working to combat social class inequality and also to promote more business diversity in general. Um, and two that sort of come to mind are Future Map, which is a nonprofit that's aiming to help um, smooth the college to career transition for first generation college graduates, so people who were the first person in their family to graduate from college, um, as well as Management Leadership for Tomorrow, which is a program that actually helps to increase diversity in general, so diversity in terms of race, gender, and social class, kind of at every step along the way uh, the way of a person's career. So, you know, helps them smooth the transition to college, to work after college, and then if they seek to pursue a business school, an MBA degree after that. And I'm sure there are many others, but those are kind of two that I'm very familiar with that I, I really appreciate that the work that they're doing. If companies could take one step right now, what would you advocate for? Yes, and I think this is the theme of the interview thus far and kind of something that we keep coming back to. I think companies really need to add social class to their definition of diversity. Again, we know it's relatively more difficult to observe, but it's still something that can be objectively assessed. And it's something that really impacts people across the lifespan, even as people adapt and learn and grow and develop skills, um, you know, individual skills and competencies. What we know is that they that people from working class contexts tend to be more comfortable with interdependent approaches and you know teamwork and things like that. So it's really important to just add that um, identity of social class to your definition of diversity. This is such an interesting topic. What drew you to this field and this area of research? I think a lot of things drew me to this area of research. I mean, growing up, I sort of 
was exposed to both blue collar and white collar jobs. My mo- my mother worked at a college. She was a fundraiser, and my father actually had his own construction business. So definitely more in the blue collar world. So I sort of saw those different norms and values being played out in the in the, these two different types of workplaces. And then I alf- I often think of um, the summer after my sophomore year of college when I was working two jobs. I was working a research job at the University of Minnesota, which was objectively you know higher skilled, higher paid, and more contributing to my resume and my ability to get into graduate school later on. But at the same time, I was also working full time as a waitress, um, very blue collar environment, very team oriented environment, in fact. And I thought it was really uh, an interesting and it really struck me that, you know, I thought that the waitressing job was much harder um, than, you know, the data entry and sort of observational coding that I was doing at the university job. But society nonetheless sort of devalued the waitressing work and, you know, compensated it less well accordingly. But I, th- I saw a lot of different skills and abilities at work there, you know, sort of helping each other out, making sure the whole um, restaurant operated as a smooth machine. And that was kind of one of the first insights I had into thinking about this difference in sort of individual versus team-based assessments and kind of how, you know, neither job is necessarily more skilled. It's just a different set of skills that's required to be effective in one context compared to the other. And how would you like to see things change in the future? I have a lot of I have a lot of asks, um, but I think you know the work that I'm doing and the work that others are doing that I've mentioned is really seeking not to sort of um, you know dominate the world with working class people, but just to sort of shed light on the way the different ways that they're skilled and the different abilities and um, strengths that they could bring to the workplace. So I think we're just really trying to level the playing field and ensure that there's an op- equal opportunity for people from working class contexts to succeed. And I really truly believe that if the if their skills and strengths are harnessed in a meaningful and authentic way that, you know, organizations do stand to gain um, some skills and competencies that may not be present when they're hiring sort of a more homogenous workforce in terms of social class background. So I think we're really just trying to create, hopefully, um, a more equitable society. And I really think that organizations have an important role to play in that because, you know, there's been a lot of work that's focused on promoting college degree attainment for people from working class backgrounds, which is an amazing first step. But to really be upwardly mobile across the lifespan, you have to uh, gain entrance to and persist in a white collar job. And so, you know, organizations really have the power to kind of create stability and upward mobility in the long term in their employees from working class backgrounds. Andrea Dittman is an assistant professor of organization and management at Emory University's Guisweta Business School. She joined us today to discuss how to build a more equitable workplace and the role that social class plays in career success and team performance. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks, Melanie. For more information about the Guisweta Effect podcast, please visit emory.biz slash podcast. Thank you.